It's time for the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, brought to you by the boys from Beyond the Art. We'll talk the latest NBA news and provide our own in-depth analysis. The Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, only real ballers know. Hello and welcome to the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Arnold, and I'm here with my co-host, Min Dow. Now, usually I like to ask Min how he's going, but... I think this week I'm going to make the assumption that he's going a little bit better than Blake Griffin, who suffered a sprained MCL on his left knee on Monday and will now miss two months. According to Wojnarowski, there's no structural damage in Griffin's knee, but recovery, like I said, will take two months and it leaves the Clippers in a pretty bad situation now. Let's get straight into it, Min. How are you feeling for the Clippers now that Blake Griffin's down? I did like that. That was very impressive, actually. Oh, look, the Clippers are, look, the Clippers are in trouble. They won three straight prior to uh, Blake Griffin's injury. They won the third game during um, – this was the same game that Griffin suffered the injury. So it really, has really set them back because, look, the Clippers are really trying to make a playoff run. With OKC struggling and um, teams around the league that the Grizzlies having injuries as well, I reckon they're really trying to go after that eight seed. And Griffin's been pretty all right this year. Played all at 19 games available and put up some decent stats, 24, 5, and 8. But, look, yeah, it looks – Looks as if the Clippers' curse has uh, struck again. Yeah, it's really interesting with Blake Griffin because we know that he's a guy that everyone says is really injury-prone, and he does always tend to go out with injuries. But the interesting thing about him is that it's not usually a recurring injury in the same spot. Like He's missed time with a broken hand from punching the assistant, uh, the equipment manager, and then he's missed time as well with the sore quad. So it's not like he has the same recurring injuries, but with this MCL now, he was sort of starting to decline. We spoke about it on a previous pod that his efficiency inside the paint was dropping more and more each year. And now he's obviously suffered an MCL injury, which can't help the athleticism at all. So with Griffin, you've just got to wonder. It always seems to be different things, but the guy just always seems to have an injury. And for the Clippers who are dealing with injuries to pretty much everyone now, with Beverly, Teodosic and Gallinari all out, their season looks basically over, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. And um, you can tell... With that statement as well, where you were talking about Griffin, his efficiency inside's gone down. He's definitely more of, more of a point forward mindset as of recently. If you look at his shot distribution, he's taken six triples a game this year, which is triple the amount of his previous career high per game. And you can tell it's also taken hit on his efficiency as well. He's shooting a career low field goal percentage, career low effective field goal percentage, and also. Um, yeah, his true shooting percentage about league average, which isn't great at all, especially if you're looking for um, a 6'10 athletic big man to be your franchise face. I guess one positive with the injury is that now in that two-month period that he does have off, he probably will focus more and more on the shooting. And if he can continue to improve from outside, it may not impact on his efficiency as much because we've seen this year he's added that three ball. And if that three ball continues to improve, he might be able to make up for the troubles inside a little bit. But if not, yeah, yeah if not, he does have a bit of trouble going forward. I honestly thought you were going to say um, in the two months off, he has more time to focus on Kendall Jenner. Yeah, well, that's probably more important than his three-point shot at the moment, if you ask me. (laughs) Well, 100%. But yeah, another injury that is kind of shaking up the league is the injury to John Wall, who will miss approximately two weeks as he deals with discomfort and inflammation in his left knee. So that was announced on Saturday by the team. So just over a week and a half left, I guess. And the Wizards aren't in the greatest situation before the season, you would have thought they would have been thinking to themselves that they would have been contending for a higher playoff spot. At the moment, they're sitting at 7th in the East, 11-9, and nine, which isn't too bad. You'd think in that two-week period, I know they've just had a bit of a rough stretch over the last four games, 
I think they're playing four games in five nights at the moment, which is one of the very few stretches that it happens this season for a team. And after that, they might be able to, they'll get a few days rest, three days off, and then they'll come back and play a few games before John Wall returns. You'd think that they're not going to be below or too far below 500 by the time he returns, given it's only two weeks. But that will still leave them there in the race with the Knicks and the Heat, who are sitting at 9 and 10th in the East. And you would have thought that they would have been one of those teams at the top with the Pistons and the Celtics. But at the moment, they're going to look to struggle. And I think that does a lot of damage to their playoffs aspirations because they would have been a team that would have been hoping for home court advantage. And the way that it's looking at the moment, they might finish, jump into a seventh seed, and then you're playing a first-round series against the Cavs at the 2-7. and seven. So, I mean, that's not a series that you want first up. And for the Wizards, I think they're in a little bit of trouble here because as their record continues to slip, like I said, the playoff aspirations just go further and further down the toilet. Yeah, it, the, the congestion around that 5-11-12 um, in, the, in the East is pretty congested and it's pretty even out there. So as you were saying, the John Wall has, I think he's out, what did you say, two weeks? Yep. Yeah, so the setback won't send him back that much as opposed to, you know, a Blake Griffin or, um, or a Paul Millsap or anything like that. But at the same time, you have to look at the Wizards' playoff picture, as you were saying, you know, how they stack up now and who has to step up, in your opinion? Well, obviously, Bill is now the best player on that team and I think he is capable of taking on some of the ball handling and playmaking responsibilities. I thought Tim Frazier might be able to come in and actually play pretty well because he did last year for um, New Orleans when he was given the chance to start. But I noticed in the last game, he only played about 20 minutes, so he wasn't even given the full-time starter's role. They were actually relying a little bit more on Bradley Beal to create. And can't remember exactly what game it was. Oh, sorry, it was the Toronto game that I was watching. And the first half, Bradley Beal was really good. And in the second half, they were just trapping Bradley Beal on any kind of pick and roll with Marshing Gortat. And Gortat doesn't really have the skills to, you know, get the ball on the short roll and do any damage there. So that makes the Wizards a lot easier to shut down without John Wall. And I feel like Bradley Beal and both Otto Porter, they're going to have to step up. But I think they do have some trouble sometimes because those two guys aren't exactly your primary creator type players. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. John Wall's more of the he's more of the floor general, the facilitator gets everyone involved. But it seems like Beal and Porter were happy in their two three roles where they were, you know, happy to spot up, take it off the dribble. Be more of a, be more the 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 primary scorers when they're on the catch as opposed to being a primary facilitator. Yeah, and it showed the percentage as well. Like again, Otto Porter shooting a ridiculous forty eight point seven percent from downtown this season. Beals shooting above average in all pretty much all major categories, and yeah, it shows like their percentage is definitely going to take a hit during this whole stretch. But a couple of guys are really looking to step up is you know as you were saying, one's Tim Frazier. He's got the start to Wall's absence. Quick little point guard can get everyone involved. Has struggles shooting the ball a little bit though, which will make them a little bit more predictable as well as you were saying. But also Kelly Oubre Jr. I, I feel as if there was a lot of word around the off season where he put out a lot of work and he was working tirelessly on his game and his three point shots up. But at the same time, his overall efficiency is down to about 42, 43 percent. And he's one of the guys who needs to step up, especially with you know. Beal and Frey just stepping in more of a playmaking role. You need some additional wing scoring, and it'll, that'll come for guys like Porter, Oubre, and uh, even Markeith Morris. Yeah, I did think of Oubre as you were talking, actually, because I noticed this season his dribble seems to have improved a little bit. He's had a few nice takes to the basket this year when I've been watching the Wizards, and you'd think that maybe just, especially maybe as a backup point guard, or in a backup point guard kind of role, you could give Oubre a little bit more ball handling duties with a second unit, See if you can get him taking the ball to the rack, using his handle, 
could be a great time for him to develop here with no John Wall just for a couple of weeks because that could really give an extra dynamic to the offense if he's able to sort of try on some of these extra opportunities or extra responsibilities. And if he shows that he's actually capable of taking some of them on, that could be a really nice addition to their offense. And he's taken about almost three extra three-point attempts a game. He's up almost eight percentage points. So you can see the works there. As yeah. you're saying, his handle's improved. He's a bit of a slash and get to the rack. He's athletic and finished. So, yeah, as you were saying, this is the perfect time to see um, Oubre unleashed. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, it's not going to hurt them too much because it is only two weeks. One of the concerns you do have is that apparently it was sort of a, an injection just to reduce inflammation in the knee. I'm not 100% sure how all of this works, but you always do sort of get a little bit concerned when it's injections and there's no no real fix to it. It's just obviously rest. So you hope that that, that doesn't become a continued thing for them because they're going to need John Wall back to hopefully make a nice run at a decent spot in the conference so they can hopefully put up a fight in the playoffs. But yeah, another team that we did want to touch on, which is one of the biggest news stories at the moment, is the Memphis Grizzlies. Obviously, they fired their head coach, David Fisdale. They've come on the back of some comments from Marcus Hull, who was benched in the last quarter, or I think it was the final 15 minutes, actually, of a game recently. He came out and said that they knew that this would hurt me by not by taking away my playing time. And I think he also said that this sort of thing wouldn't happen to Mike Conley. So he was obviously really pissed off. He took it personally and... I think there's been some rumours that there's been some discontent, I think, between him and Fisdale for a while. Chris Vernon, who is the Ring of Podcast host and who works in Memphis, said that Gasol isn't really the type who appreciates the coach getting on him as much as other guys do. He, he doesn't find that as a welcome approach for himself. And he's sort of taking taking it personally a little bit a few times when Fisdale's really got on him in practice and they've had some altercations and apparently the relationship there wasn't really good and I think after that game, it just came to a boiling point and the Grizzlies decided between Fisdale and Gasol and they went with Gasol. So just from you, how do you feel about the entire situation? And if you were the Grizzlies, who would you choose between between Gasol and Fisdale? It's interesting because apparently now Mark Gasol is passed on the trade block and the Grizzlies are really listening to offers for him. And between the two, it's kind of hard. You know, you choose the star player, choose the coach. Generally, the star player has the edge over the coach, generally. But you'd be thinking that, you know, if if Fisdale is the kind of coach you want to commit to, which in my opinion he is, he's a caliber that you would want to commit to, then Marcus will be on the block. But at the same time, if you if you send that message that Fisdale's staying, Marcus has gone, that really decreases and depresses his trade value. So... It's a very tricky situation with what the Grizzlies have to do at the moment because when you have a, a disconnection between your head coach and your one of your pillars of the franchise and one of the heart and souls of it, it really um, it really throws things out of whack. And it brings me back to a point where it sort of sort of started when the Grizzlies were very um, dependent on the two pillars of their franchise on the court with Mike Conley and Marcus Hall. And as soon as Conley went down. You could see the cracks beginning to really get worse and worse and worse until it just until it just completely split open. And the Grizzlies just haven't been haven't been themselves. You know, they've never been the greatest offensive team, but they're the 24th at the moment. They're not. They're pretty a mediocre defensive team. Usually, they're in the top seven. They, they haven't rebounded well on either end, and also they're they're allowing a lot of teams to get to the free throw line as well. So the Grizzlies haven't been the same, but also it just showed that it was. Maybe just a bit of a flawed, uh, flawed makeup from the very beginning. It's actually interesting on that note because 
Zach Lowe made some comments about the Grizzlies on his podcast that I think came out this morning, and he said that from his perspective, it seems as if the Grizzlies aren't interested in blowing it up until at least after 20, uh, 2019. Apparently, the reason they're not looking to blow it up between 2000, until 2019 is like financial reasons. They don't think that they can handle financially a rebuild at this stage. And from what Zach said, it seems as if they don't have their own picks coming up. I don't know if the rumors around Marcus Hull were just rumors or if it was people were just would probably people were probably making calls, obviously, because they knew that he was not happy there. But I think now that Fisdale's gone, I think they're going to try and keep Marcus Hull and Mike Conley happy. And I think they want to put bums on seats for the next few years until they get some of their own picks. And then I think they're still a few years away from that rebuild. So, I mean, that's coming from Zach Lowe. I know other guys have made rumors to say that Gasol was looking to go, but it seems as if now with the firing of Fisdale that they're going to, I would probably say, commit to mediocrity here and just do what they can with their guys, be as good as possible until they get to that point where they've got some picks coming up and then they might look to blow it up, I think. Yeah, I think, um, speaking of picks, I think, not this upcoming draft, the draft after they, they owe a 2019 first-round pick to Boston, which is protected 1-8, to 1-6 to in 2020, and then unprotected in 2021. So it's financial reasons, it's understandable for the Grizzlies, but at the same time, I would not be surprised that they were fielding calls, and there were very strong rumours at the NBA that the Cavs, the Celtics, the Blazers, and the Raptors had fielded some explorative calls in terms of with Marcus Orr. Yeah, it would be silly for all of those teams to not put in a call because, like we mentioned before, he's obviously has been extremely unhappy. And I think Vernon even mentioned this. I remember remember last year when Gasol was in the best form of his life and you had like the Conor McGregor wiggly arms going on. He was like loving playing basketball. And then at some stage, things just changed for him, I think. And I think it was because he didn't really enjoy the way that Fisdale liked to coach. I think some guys obviously do. Dwayne Wade and LeBron are massive fans. They sort of were asking questions after he was fired. But Gasol and him just seemed to be two guys that just didn't really bode well together. And, yeah, you'd be silly as another team to not put in calls about Marc Gasol because, like we all know, he's a former Defensive Player of the Year. He's an all-star level player still. I think he's averaging 19 points, nine rebounds and four assists. Like, still great numbers. And he could definitely help a championship-caliber team. So there's definitely a chance that teams are going to put in offers, but I'm just not sure how much how much they're going to need to convince Memphis to let go of him. You'd think that they're probably going to need to be able to offer a deal that gives them long-term, I guess, long-term upside, so some, some picks or anything along those, like young guys. But you'd think they're also looking to still be a good team, so they're going to be looking for someone that can help them stay relevant right now. Yeah, I think you, that, that's exactly it. They, they want to be relevant in the, in the medium and short term, but also long-term they want to have some flexibility, but also some upside to their roster as well. And um, look, Gasol's got, after this season, Gasol's got one guaranteed year left. Then after that, he's got a player option. And then at that age, he'll be 33 and 34, respectively. So look, at the moment, Gasol's still a top 30 player. And if you're one of the four teams that would I just mentioned, which one are you most curious and most interested for Marcus Gasol to potentially land? Well, that's a difficult one. It's hard to see where the best fit is. I don't think Toronto kind of had the upside to compete with anyone because we know that DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry always seem to, well, they're not their best selves in the playoffs. Their games aren't really suited to that. But you think that Marcus Gasol as a upgrade on Jonas Valanciunas does look pretty good. But, I mean, if we're really just talking who's the best team to potentially win a championship, you've just got to go for the Cleveland Cavaliers and it'd be interesting to see him in the place of, say, a Tristan Thompson. Marcus Gasol was obviously an addition 
like a talent addition there, and I think it makes them better. Whether or not it gives them a chance against the Warriors, because I mean the Warriors aren't the greatest matchup for Marcus Ole because he's you know a little bit older now, a little bit slower of foot. But still, I think he does give them a, something different, and I think if you really want to see him win a championship, the Cavaliers are probably the best chance. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree, and you know, they could probably field a decent offer for Marcus Ole. The, uh, well, speaking of the Cavs, I think it's interesting that David Fisdale is now on the market. I think two teams that immediately come to mind, you know, that sort of need a coaching change are the Cavaliers and the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think if I were those two, I would heavily consider David Fisdale and I'd rather make the change early on during the season. The Cavaliers have to be looking at those tweets from LeBron James and Dwayne Wade where they're calling David Fisdale like their man or my man. And I'm not sure exactly how the situation is with Ty Lue and LeBron and stuff like that. We never really get any real confirmation on whether or not they get along that well or if he fully has his back. But you can see that they obviously love Fisdale and it'd be an interesting one to see because, yeah, if you can get a guy that those two guys love, I mean, you've got the locker room on your side. I feel like Fisdale could do some good work in Cleveland. David Fisdale is definitely a, an NBA caliber head coach. He's just in, He was just in an unfortunate situation. I'm sure he'll find a new job. And there are definitely about five or seven head coaches in the league that are shaking. Yeah, and on that note of Billy Donovan, I'm actually not sure. Like we saw, you saw the piece from Kevin O'Connor recently on the Ringer, and some of the sets that he showed in there, some of the like great ball movement that Billy Donovan was trying to institute, it actually does look good. And I think 100%, like Kevin said, it seems to be more of a Russell Westbrook problem there, or seems to be more of an issue with the players because the coach is trying to instill some great sets that really focus on getting everyone touches of the ball, but they don't seem to be running it a lot. And You mentioned last time they're number one in isolation. They're bottom of the league in passes per game. So I just think for them, I don't know if Fisdale is really the guy because he doesn't have a connection with those guys like he does with the guys in Cleveland. And I feel like he'd just have to put up with the same sort of shit that everyone else does in Oklahoma. So I don't know how much impact he could really have there. If he won the locker room over, he's definitely a great coach, but... I think a lot of the issues there do stem from the players in Oklahoma. I do agree. I, I just think David Fisdale seems like he's more stern as a head coach. He's more not willing to back down, and he's more of a leader of men as opposed to Billy Donovan, who's you know I think is pretty pretty okay with getting pushed over. Uh, yeah, I do think that's true, but I also think that the same way with Marcus Olhow butted heads when Fisdale was trying to do his thing. I mean, maybe Russ, maybe Melo, maybe PG, maybe they don't respond well to that. And if only one of those guys doesn't respond well to that, then that leaves the same sort of issue that you had in Memphis. I just, I just, I just, just guessing that um, anything's better than what they're going on, on uh, in OKC now because they're clinging on to a playoff spot. Well, actually, in the moment they're out of the playoff spot. Actually, they're currently ninth, eight and eleven. They've lost their last two. So look, you've got to look for alternatives, and you know, unless trading Westbrook, which seems super unlikely, you've got to make a change. And also, like, just quickly touch on it. Are people surprised as how it is? Westbrook in the past has waved off players after timeouts. He's doubled, he did what he want last season. You know, he pretty much made the basketball court his, his playground and had possessions whenever he wanted. Players have gotten better since they've left him. And um, seemingly stars like Paul George and Mello have only gotten worse since they've um, played with Westbrook. So I don't really want to rant on about it for too much. But, you know, are people really surprised? Like, the signs were there. Just people really need to open their eyes to it. And, you know, more article, more media exposure is great for the, um, for the really pending issues that, that they have. I mean, I did definitely think they were going to be a lot better than they are, but I'm not surprised that they have had some issues integrating those guys. Their defense has been great, and we knew that would be the case, but their offense has really struggled. A little bit, obviously, honestly, a little bit more struggles than I thought there would be, 
But yeah, it was always going to be some sort of issue integrating those guys. But for me, the surprise team of the season's actually been a team that we wanted to touch on. It's been the Detroit Pistons. They're second in the East right now. They've got a 13-6 and six record. They just had a really strong win against the Celtics. And honestly, I'm super surprised. I, I thought that we ha- obviously last season they played pretty poorly. Drummond and Reggie Jackson were having issues with each other. I think most of the entire team didn't really enjoy Jackson or his style of play. But the year before, they were one of the happy teams of the league. Like Everyone was really excited about Detroit. They had a good series, actually, against the um, Cavs. They lost in four, I think, but they were really competitive four games. And everyone expected them to come back last year and sort of put in a better performance, work on where, like grow from where they were. And it didn't happen. They kind of had that Blazers season like you guys did where you had a really strong season. And then the next year you came out and you kind of regressed a little bit. But the Pistons now, we're seeing that that season they did have in 2015-16, that's where they're building off it now. And Drummond shooting his three throws pretty efficiently. Jackson looks like himself. Drummond's actually playing extremely well. He's not looking at post touches like he used to. He's working out of the pick and roll. Been pretty efficient. And Tobias Harris has been great as well for them. So some good moves from Stan now. that They're starting to look great for them. Ish, Ish Smith's been really good on the, on the bench, off the bench, sorry. Really solid backup point guard. Uh, the Avery Bradley edition was good, and it's starting to look good for Stan Van Gundy. How are you feeling about the Pistons? Yeah, I agree. Detroit early on this season have been a major surprise. 13-6, second in the Eastern Conference, won seven of the past 10 games. That is a huge surprise that anyone thought. And look, it's been behind their top 10 offense. And I really thought, you know, their defense would be up there. But at the moment, it's in a mediocre mediocre part. But it's, it's their offense have really stepped up. And it's really become from guys like Avery uh, Avery Bradley, who's come in, you know, shot the ball well, being an elite 3 and D guy. Andre Drummond improved his free throw shooting a little bit, um, just being a dominant inside. They're actually better with him on the court this season as opposed to last season when they were actually a lot better with him off. And one of the big surprises this season has been Tobias Harris. Through 19 games, 19 points, 5 rebounds, 47% from the field, 47% from three-point land on six attempts a game, which is outlandishly efficient. And at the line, he's shooting 91% on two um, free-throw attempts a game. So Tobias Harris stopped his usage a little bit um, in terms of field goal attempts per game, but his also efficiency has skyrocketed. And you'd think that would dip because 47% seems unsustainable on, um, on six attempts a game. But at the same time, boy, have the um, the Detroit Pistons been very, very good to watch. It's interesting. They don't have anyone that stands out massively in terms of efficiency. Tobias Harris has been really good at 1.2 possessions per game. But besides from that, the rest of the starters and main contributors are guys like Ish Smith, 1.06. Uh, Reggie Jackson, 1.15. Avery Bradley, 1.08. And incredibly, Andre Drummond as well, who's 1.14. And those numbers aren't sort of, you know... They don't jump off the charts. They don't jump out at you and make you think, oh, wow, this is an incredibly efficient team. But when you've got six to seven guys who are all shooting efficiently in your starting lineup at a fairly good usage, and then you've got your bit players like Langston Galloway, who's 1.22 points per possession, Anthony Tolliver, 1.19 points per possession, and those guys really help bump up the efficiency. And you don't have anyone out there that's really massively hurting the lineup. The only guy who's hurting the team overall really is Stanley Johnson, who's 0.98 0.98 points per position. So he's the only guy who's actually under a point per possession. So that's just really great, solid contribution around from the entire team. And they're actually getting some pe- bench production this year. Drummond is more engaged, like we said. Jackson's been a lot better. The acquisitions of Bradley and even Harris a few years ago have worked out really well for them. So 
yeah, they're, they're looking quite good as a team. We, we talked about whether they're real or they're not real. I kind of think that they are a really solid team, definitely like a top four seed type. But one of the issues I do have is that in the playoffs, they just don't really have anyone that's going to put fear into your heart. I mean, Bradley's a decent player. Tobias Harris is playing really well. Drummond does scare you a little bit on the boards and stuff like that, but no one from a put the ball in their hands point of view and let them create. Like you're not worried about anyone down the stretch or in the big moments to score for them. So, do you think that's going to come back to hurt them, or do you think that playing in a with a really strong five guys and in a good team heavy system, do you think that they're going to be able to flourish anyway? As you said, they're they're deep. They've got a lot of guys that can roll out, a lot of guys that can contribute. And um, no one in the playoffs is going to really put fear in your eyes. You know, if Reggie Jackson's got a high pick and roll, yeah, it's all right. But I've seen a couple of games this season where Reggie Jackson has closed pretty pretty effectively for the Pistons. Um, but it's interesting because they played a they played the ninth hardest schedule this season. They're not they don't play at a super high pace, and also they're still a top ten offensive team. So it means their half court offense, and and as you can see, their half court offense has been effective. They don't get to the line that often. But what they do do is they generate turnovers defensively which and also they control the glass. Those are the two main factors and therefore teams have to adapt to them. And when they adapt to them, they have that closing lineup of um, Drummond, Harris, Stanley Johnson, Bradley and Jackson, which who were pretty stout defensively, but also they can really score in the half court and control the tempo of the game. And a lot of teams in the league don't have that identity. And I think the... Um, Stan Van Gundy's sort of gone back to that. He's sort of looked at that mold of the mid-2000s Pistons where they controlled the glass, they controlled the interior paint inside, they didn't give, many, they didn't give their opponents many free throw attempts, and they, they were strong in the half court. They were, you know, they were a pretty solid defensive team. I think the Pistons will get better on that side, but also um, in the half court they were happy to score and um, didn't make that many mistakes. Yeah, well, when you can put a spread pick and roll around Jackson and Drummond who, I mean, they're not the greatest offensive players themselves. Drummond's a pretty good role man. Jackson's a decent pick and roll point guard. But when the two of them together come in, they're both above average. It's a really solid tandem. And then on the outside of that, you've got spacing and you've got guys that can put the ball on the floor as well. So you've got space around it with Bradley and Tobias Harris and whoever your fifth guy is, you know, a Langston Galloway or an Anthony Tolliver or even a Luke Kennard who has been shooting the ball pretty well for a rookie. And then you come out there and most of those guys, who you, if you've, you've got your spread pick and roll, you dish it out. If Bradley doesn't have a shot, he can put it on the floor. If Harris doesn't have a shot, he can put it on the floor. So once you run your spread pick and roll, the offense doesn't exactly die either, which means that they do have, they do, it does make them a little bit more dynamic, does make them a little bit harder to guard. And like we said before, they're sitting second in the East right now. The Cleveland Cavaliers are really chasing them. They're on a nine-game win streak. They're at 14-7. and seven. Do we think that there's any chance at all? You said they've played the ninth hardest schedule, which is a good sign for them, but do we think there's any chance at all the Pistons can hold on to that second spot or are they just destined to lose it to the Cavaliers before long? I don't like to be the pessimist around here, but I think they are destined to lose it to the Cavaliers for a couple of reasons. That the Cavaliers have the best player in the world. They're only one game back. or In fact, actually, they're, they're not even a game back, but they've with one loss back. The Cavs are hot. The Pistons are trudging along, still pretty good form. But if you look at this larger sample size, the Cavs are bound to keep progressing, whereas the Pistons are bound for a little bit of regression. It seems like their offense has been a little bit too hot. I expect their defense to be better, but I see that the Cavs will climb. And look, if you just look at the, the Cavs during this stretch, it has been phenomenal. You know, LeBron's been 
a 27, 10 and 8 guy on 55% shooting, 47% from downtown on six three-point attempts a game. Kevin Love's 29. Dwayne Wade stepped up a little bit, been more efficient than he has been um, for the early course of the career. I'm sorry, the season. And then he got calls like Kyle Corver, who's been shooting 42% from downtown on seven attempts a game. Like everyone's stepping up, everyone's chipping in, and the Cavs have been a lot better team during this stretch, and I expect that to really continue. Yeah, one interesting thing that I can't remember who said it, but someone mentioned the other day that this sort of win streak has coincided quite coincidentally with Derek Rose being out. And you look at their lineup now, and the guys that are using the ball in general or have touches are incredibly efficient. And we're looking at LeBron James, you know, 1.33 points per possession. Kevin Love's 1.2. Kyle Corver's 1.4, which is incredible, by the way. Jeff Green's 1.2 even. You've got Channing Fry's 1.3. And you're taking Derek Rose out there, who's not, not inefficient, actually, looking at his point tally. I mean, probably just a little bit below league standard. is at 1.06 points per possession. So not, not kind of at the Stanley Johnson level we were talking about before. But Derek Rose come out of the lineup, more touches to guys like LeBron James and I think that's really helped out the offense as well. And you did did mention before Dwayne Wade, he's still kind of an issue for the offense. I think like his usage rates up at twenty six percent, and his points per possession is only at zero point nine eight. So he's a high usage player with a really inefficient points per shot at the moment. But his assist percentage is up to twenty five point two percent, and they're limiting limiting him to about you know twenty four minutes per game. So Dwayne Wade passing the ball more, trying to shoot less really can help this offense because he's a good creator, good passer, good playmaker, and he's playing less minutes. So in a shorter role, Dwayne Wade can be more efficient. But yeah, I'd like to see that usage come down from Dwayne Wade to about 20, 20%. And then I feel like the Cavs are really onto something there. They've got a really strong starting lineup. Obviously, Dwayne Wade can anchor bench units as a playmaker. And yeah, without Derek Rose now, who's, like we said before, sometimes can come in and use possessions at a pretty inefficient rate, I think that the Cavs are really on the right track now. No, I definitely agree, and I think that although I said Wade was doing better, I think, of course, Wade's um, his efficiency could rise and also his use could go down. But Wade's a great, great locker room guy. Um, he's, a, he's a great closing defender in the past five minutes. How many times have you seen him make a clutch block or a clutch steal? If everyone could step up and continually to um, play at a high standard, that'd be great for the Cavs. And I think the one thing that was has really stood out during this stretch has been the Cavs' defense. You know, We all knew their offense was top five. If you've got LeBron, you've got Kevin Love, and you've got you know Kyle Corbin, and you've got even Isaiah Thomas to come back as well. Yeah, I think that it really showed that you know the the Derrick Rose um, subtraction was kind of a blessing in disguise because Derrick Rose was a high usage, inefficient player, but also just really wasn't that great or, or a really locked in defender. And over the course of the season, the Cavs have been twenty fourth, but over the past nine games, they've been fourth in the league in defensive rating. So. It really showed they've they've put together a great stretch of basketball over the past nine ten games and they've been fourth in both major categories in terms of offense and defense, and you know it's that's a recipe success and if they can maintain in that you know over the course of the season being in that ten fifteen range on the defensive end, there's no um, there's no reason why they can't be a top two seed um, uh, for sure. Yeah, and I think credit where credit's due on this one. We kind of love to give LeBron James some crap for his defense because. He's traditionally been overrated by most people, most fans, because they see the highlight plays. They see him when he's locked in and how good he is. But generally, he doesn't really bring the effort on defense. But I think during this stretch, LeBron showed what kind of a leader he is. He's kind of lifted the intensity a little bit. And when LeBron James goes, the rest of the team follows. So 
his added intensity has definitely helped the team there and everyone else has lifted with him, which is what you want to see. And it's good to see they're actually doing it early this season rather than saving it till way too late to flick the switch because you kind of do need to build those habits and get those reps in. So it's good to see that they're doing it now, getting themselves to where they need to be. And I actually think that the Celtics' first seed is still in a little bit of danger with the Cavs playing as well as they are now. No, yeah, I definitely agree. And um, the Cavs are only three and a half games back from the Celtics. And the Celtics are playing well behind their fantastic defense. But it will come down to eventually, can the Celtics beat the Cavs in the series? Because I think that is an inevitable West, Eastern Conference Finals matchup. And um, look, if IT comes back and fits in seamlessly, hopefully Hayward is back as well. That'll be that'll be a surefire heck of a series to watch. Yeah, I agree. And on that note, I think that's all we have time for today. It's been great chat. Do you have anything besides from the Blazers' defense that you want to plug before we leave? Look, I know I like to send you a statistic about the Blazers and their defense, but this week it's on the other side of the ball. Over the past three games, I've looked a lot better on that side of the ball, and they've boasted the eighth best offense in the league. So good times are still to come, Trent. I'm very optimistic about the Blazers on both sides of the ball now. And it'll be very interesting because we play the Houston Rockets um, within our next three games, I'm pretty sure. We definitely have to do a live stream for that. And I think on the note of the Blazers' improved offense, doesn't that come on the back of your boy Pat Connington shooting lights out from three? Yes, how do you fastball? 46, uh, no, 40, yeah, 46% from downtown, 46%, 46.4%, sorry, on catch-and-shoot triples. Pat Connaughton has come into the starting line over the past three games. Blazers' offense looked better. Defense still looking good. I don't know about you, Trent, but I'm optimistic about this, uh, this starting lineup change and uh, big Alfa Rukamini's come back as well. Yeah, I think you did a pretty good breakdown of that on the Beyond the Arc Facebook page. A few nice stats. A little bit, I think it was a nice play that Pat Connaughton was running to show him what he can do, which is something that guys should, should check out. And also, you mentioned before the Celtics' incredible defense at the moment. I've got a bit of an essay coming out about those guys. I put it, put the pen to paper, actually. Only planning on writing about 500 words, and it's ended up closer to 1,200 because I was just so inspired watching some of the game tape. And So hopefully that's going to be out soon for the guys to read. And yeah, Portland Rockets coming up soon. We're going to have to really get around that. I think that could be something interesting for us to get behind, maybe maybe sit, sit down and watch the game, get it on a chat there, and let everyone listen to us argue with each other and talk about our own teams and get a little bit too passionate about the game. Don't, don't forget to bring your cat as well. Yeah, well, it's not a Twitter NBA show, Nate Duncan style, without your cat on your lap, is it? <laughs> oh, bloody Nate Duncan. Well, that's all we have time for. Great chat again today, Min, and I will see you next week. All right, see you later, buddy.